My name is Peter Sutherland. I'm chairman of LSE. And it's important in this particular year to say this discussion is the latest uh, event in the LSE European Institute, also Worldwide Perspectives on Europe series. And we're very grateful for those who have helped to sponsor it. And we have two admirable speakers. The first is Carol de Gucht, who is Trade Commissioner, but he's had many responsibilities before, including Prime Minister, and he's had roles in regard to development <coughs> and aid. And um, I think that his perspective will be very interesting. I have a sort of perspective myself, but I won't bore you with it. I was Director General of GATT and the WTO briefly in the early days. And the one thing I remember very, very poignantly is the application from China to become part of the WTO. Basically it said very clearly and utterly without ambiguity that it now behoved China to be part of the global trading system. And indeed, that's a significant role that it has played, it has played since. Whether it has played its role adequately or not, I leave it to Mr. Van Gucht, Carol Van Gucht, to uh, explain. He was Deputy Prime Minister, Minister for Foreign Affairs, Minister for European Affairs, Professor of uh, Law, and nobody is better qualified than he to speak to us. And he will speak first. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Sutherland, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Professor De Vos. Uh, it's, uh, it's hard to imagine uh, a city better suited to launch a book about the economic meltdown than in London. Not only um, is it the capital of international finance, it's also home to a, a football team whose club song, I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles, can be heard across the grounds every week and should serve as a reminder of human ambition and all too human uh, limitations. Professor De Vos' book uh, vividly describes how the financial sector and the U.S. housing market were indeed blowing pretty bubbles in the air until they burst and left so many of us uh, disillusioned with globalization and free market economies. <coughs> Reading about it now, even after so much has been said and written, it remains a gripping and disturbing tale. The story of a perfect storm of market failure, policy mistakes, regulatory neglect, and human weaknesses. It was at this very university that uh, Queen Elizabeth II asked a group of uh, prominent economists, some of you were probably present, the tough question in all this, why did nobody see it coming? But any West Ham United supporter could have told Her Majesty what uh, would happen to the economic bubbles of the 19s and the noughties. 
they fly so high they nearly reach the sky and then like dreams they fade and die did it and after the meltdown gives us a sharp analysis of the world we live in as a result a world in which uh, state capitalism is much stronger than before in which even western governments play a surprisingly and increasingly large role in the economy a world that struggles to put the lessons it has learned from the crisis into practice and in mapping out its economic future struggles to keep its angry and frightened citizens on board I will not summarize the book for you Professor De Vos has said enough about it and in any case it speaks for itself the question that primarily concerns me as Europe's trade commissioner is what what's next what do we do now how do we reboot our economy bearing in mind the lessons of the past and the changes in the economic and geopolitical context at a time when many people uh, mistakenly see free trade as one of the factors that got us into the crisis how do we use uh, trade to get us out of it ladies and gentlemen it's uh, not an easy exercise but a very important one at this stage to try to measure the long-term impact of the crisis on international trade just how big is the risk of protectionism in this radically different world of state capitalism and geopolitics and after radical shifts of the worldwide economic balance towards the east I share most of uh, Professor De Vos analysis on this though I don't share all of his pessimism it is uh, important to know that so far the threat of uh, protectionism whether blatant or creeping has not generally materialized there was certainly a rise in protectionist pressure in the immediate aftermath of the crisis but it seems to be waning since more and more economic regions leave the worst of the crisis behind them according to the latest WTO calculations between October 2008 and October 2009 0.8% of the world trade suffered from protectionist barriers in some form or another between September 2009 and last month that was the case for only 0.4% so protectionism has so far been rather limited in time and in scope and what's uh, even more important the countries in which protectionist threats have uh, persisted are precisely those that are not yet part of the WTO not uh, to name Russia or that are not at this moment members of the government procurement agreement in the WTO so at least for now the world trading system has successfully resisted protectionist pressure rather than succumbed to it is this a case of what doesn't kill me makes me stronger it's too early to draw that conclusion the history of trade and the crisis so far certainly underlines the fact that a great majority of governments whether they rule emerging or developed economies Asian Western or Latin American countries remain convinced of the benefits of open trade for their own good and they should as Mark De Vos writes where globalization has entered during the past three decades poverty has left when population growth is taken into account an astonishing 1.2 billion people left poverty behind 
And though the emerging markets, and especially the BRIC countries, speak most to the imagination, let us not forget that for the developed economies as well, this was on the whole a period of sustained growth. Between 1980 and 2008, the average OECD citizen saw his real income grow by more than half. Whether it's for China, South Korea, Ghana, or uh, Germany, globalization works. And policymakers around the world and across the ideological spectrum seem to realize deeply. But economic statistics are one thing, political reality is uh, quite another. The threat of protectionism persists and even increases as the economic and political fallout from uh, the crisis work their way through. State intervention, specifically in the financial sector, threatens to politicize the economy. And when uh, that happens, nationalism is never far away. Geopolitical tension and jealousy then loom large. Most importantly, unemployment may lead to political discontent. History has shown that there is a causal link between unemployment and protectionism. The legitimacy of open markets is clearly under strain, and whether that is rightly so or not, that's not the issue. It uh, should worry us all. If an irrational feel-good factor has created a bubble, an exaggerated feel-bad factor threatens to keep us from leaving the bubble behind. The cost of failure in the struggle with the protectionist mindset could be huge. If uh, all WTO members were to raise their applied tariffs on goods to bound levels, meaning to a level still allowed under the current WTO rules, world income would fall by some $350 billion. In a more conservative scenario, if all countries should raise their tariffs back to the highest levels they applied since uh, 1995, the loss to global output would be $134 billion. These are impressive figures, and scenarios such as these are not entirely implausible. Add to this the potential costs of other less obvious and less quantifiable barriers to trade, such as uh, producer uh, subsidies, procurement practices, technical obstacles, and creative use of trade defensive instruments, and few people will doubt the importance of uh, this uh, battle. Ladies and gentlemen, the best way to prevent economic globalization from going backwards is to push it forward. Not only do I believe we can succeed in doing so, I also believe the European Union can play a crucial role in that effort. That's another thing I don't quite agree with Professor De Vos on. Yes, uh, uh, China and India are, as he calls it, uh, the head chefs of a cooking fest of uh, Asian trade deals, where the noodle bowl now holds over 165 bilateral trade deals, with uh, more than 60 others at various staging of the uh, cooking process. And yes, there is always a danger of this hype of agreements becoming stumbling blocks rather than building blocks for multilateral trade liberalization. But uh, that is only part of the story. In fact, since it has opted to pursue bilateral and regional free trade agreements in parallel with pushing for a successful conclusion of the Doha development round, Europe has been at the vanguard in trade liberalization. 
if not in the quantity, then most certainly in the quality of such agreements. The FTA with Korea is thus far the most ambitious of its kind, much more significant in scope than the usual Asian noodles Professor De Vos describes, and it goes uh, much beyond what the U.S. has achieved in its negotiations as well. The Singapore negotiations we have officially launched only two weeks ago will be equally broad and deep, and we are in the process of negotiating a number of other FTAs. The one with India is the best example that might be more restricted in scope, but will prove to be very important in added value. On top of that, I have made it a priority to tackle behind the border barriers to trade with prime partners such as the US, China, and Japan, because I'm convinced that the economic benefits of uh, these efforts are a multiple of the gains from tariff reduction. So I don't see why Europe should be modest about our current role in trade liberalization. If liberalization needs leadership, Europe is playing its part. Through our current regional and bilateral liberalization initiatives, we are uh, tackling barriers to trade and investments uh, which the WTO, even under favorable circumstances, will still need many years to come to grips with. Nor do I buy the argument that the pursuit of FTAs weakens the appetite for a multilateral accord. The creation of the WTO was shortly preceded by NAFTA and the completion of the internal markets. Bilateral progress is not a distraction, but rather a springboard for global action. I do agree that multilateralism must remain our first best option, and I will spend much of my time and energy in the months to come to try to conclude at long last the Doha Development Round, which has gone on for too long. The Doha Round is important in itself, as it will generate welfare benefits, especially for developing countries. Half of the gains from Doha would be reaped in the first five, five years of implementation, which is precisely what the world economy needs. But it would also boost Europe's GDP by around 45 billion euros in the longer run. More profoundly, a successful Doha round will buttress the whole WTO edifice. As I already said, it has passed the most important stress test since its inception, which is, not, uh, which is no mean fat, but taking the Doha step forward would make it more resilient. The WTO is by far the strongest pillar of global economic governance with clear rules that are enforceable and respected. Doha would further strengthen that pillar. Getting to an ambitious and balanced conclusion to the Doha Development Round, as the Pittsburgh meeting of the G20 reaffirmed, will depend on political willpower, not just on both sides of the Atlantic, but all sides of the Pacific Ocean as well. The EU is uh, still the biggest trader in the world, and we therefore have a large finger in the pie. However, the truth is that negotiations are currently deadlocked because of disagreements between big, player, big players others than Europe. G20 leaders want 2010 to become the year of Doha. So far, for that to occur, trade negotiators must be given more leeway. Should that happen, it will make sure 
and I will make sure that uh, the EU plays its constructive part. Ladies and gentlemen, Professor De Vos' book makes clear that even if market liberalization is not as a rule the result of a liberal mindset, indeed throughout history it has been more the result of uh, competition between states rather than democratic and market-led competition. It's very hard to sustain if it lacks legitimacy. Few would deny that as a result of the crisis, the idea of free market economics as such is now under pressure. The much-needed crisis intervention of uh, the state in the economy threatens to make interventionism a more acceptable proposition again. Our aging population and tailing larger pension payments and health care costs will tend to add further to the weight of the public sector in the economy. However, at the same time, the towering levels of public debt will hold any form of unbridled interventionism since taxpayers' willingness to foot the bill is also limited. As soon as the worst of the crisis is over, and this should uh, now be soon, the state needs to be rolled back. For policymakers in Europe and the rest of the world, the exit strategy is the key issue before us. The hardest nut to crack will be to execute it in a socially digestible <coughs> manner. The status quo is not an option. Holding on to the nurse for fair or anything worse is not sustainable in the long run. In the uh, final count, what really matters is the balance between the quality of public services and rules and the cost for taxpayers and the economy more generally. What uh, is important is cost effectiveness, not size as such. Professor De Vos' book issues an uh, healthy warning that it is not because governments have been catapulted by the crisis into a much bigger role in the economy that therefore and therefore that they should now hold on to it. I thank him uh, for that warning and I thank you for your kind attention. Thank you very much. I'm now going to call Mark DeVos to, um, to uh, speak. He's a professor at Ghent University. His book is the celebration that we're having today, in a sense. It's a celebration of a book after the meltdown, The Future of Capitalism and Globalization in the Age of Twin Crises, financial and obviously, more generally, economic crises. He is a general director of the Itinera Institute, um, and this is a non-partisan policy think tank in Brussels. And I'm sure that he will have very interesting things to say to us. Thank you. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. It's a pleasure to be here. I understand the commissioner has to leave at 6.30, so um, I will try to do it in 20 minutes. Um, 
the age of the twin crisis, I should add to that a question mark because I'm not here to predict about the future. Um, I don't have a crystal ball. If you have, please contact me after my intervention. Um, this is the book. Um, one, I have been told of now about 10,000 books already published related to the crisis. At least one sector of the economy is doing very well, thanks to the crisis. Um, where is my publisher? Um, yes. Well, uh, so what is this book about and what is it not about? Um, it is not about uh, trying to explain the causes of the crisis and doing the blame game, although I do some, some of that. It's not about uh, forecasting, economic forecasting. Um, it's about trying to give the big picture, the big picture of the fundamental things that have been changed by the crisis and by the policies that we adopted since the advent of the subprime crisis. By taking the big picture, I lose a lot of nuance. So I'm pretty aware of that, and I'm sure there will be plenty of remarks about everything I have, about everything I have to say. Um, my stance is a bit of the, the pointiest stance. I, I start with a, a blank canvas, and then I assemble all the points I see, and then I do a pop art. I kind of, uh, you know, blow it up, and, and, and I, see, I try to see what emerges. We're still pretty much in the thick of the crisis, and uh, um, it's... Nothing that I'm claiming here is necessarily going to be the case in a couple of years down the road. Yeah. Um, okay, so 20 minutes. This is what I'll do. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about the, the storyline of the crisis. Um, I, I give you, I want to take you back in time to 2007 and just have a, a snapshot of the world prior to the crisis. Um, and this is important, and I'll explain to you why. And then I'll give you some reflection of uh, the uh, consequences of the crisis policies, and I'll leave you with some thought if the clock permits me. Um, okay. Well, you can all read, so please read. I'll shut up for a minute. So these are a couple of quotes. The first one is by the Prime Minister of Australia. The second one is the President of France. The third one is the Prime Minister of Russia. The fourth one is the President of Brazil. The fifth one is the current Prime Minister of Japan. And the sixth one is uh, Gordon Brown. That's the storyline. Yeah? That's the narrative, not just by the politicians, but by the whole army of professional commentators who kind of fill the pages of the newspapers and the, and the newsstands every day. Um, this is perception. Yeah? Whether it is reality, I leave that in the middle. We can argue and we'll argue forever who is really to blame. Yeah? But uh, perception becomes reality, and certainly perception becomes political reality. And that's my first point that I want to make, is that this story is now kind of uh, fixing itself between the ears of the public opinion. Um, you do not necessarily immediately see a big revolution out there. There's no new Marx standing up and uh, you know, throwing capitalism in the dustbin of history. Um, that's true. Yeah. So elections, if you monitor elections, then hard to predict which way they're going to go, depending on the storyline. Yeah, you would say, well, we're going to have a left uh, kind of uh, uh, winning all over. Yeah. That's not happening. Uh, why is that not happening? 
Why is the picture mixed? Because, and I've done some research myself in the book, I've taken a look at recent elections in Japan, in Germany, in Spain, and what you see is that every single political party out there is signing up to the narrative. So what you see in terms of left-right, if you want to call it that, let's do it for the sake of the argument, so the left is more inclined towards the state and the right more towards the market. Um, in, that, in those terms, the conclusion is that the right and the center have moved to the left. This is something you see very clearly in election manifestos, um, in what they propose, what parties, political parties across the spectrum propose an economic policy, and obviously that eventually transpires into government yeah, and into political choices, and I'm going to come back to that. So for me, this is very important, and I say this here because I know this is a school of economics, and um, I have this uh, feeling that economists uh, sometimes underestimate uh, mindsets, um, culture, spirit, yeah? the spirit of the age. Yeah? We used to come, or we used to have this spirit. You remember that one. Somebody got elected president of the United States on that spirit, yeah? Ronald Reagan. Yeah? Um, today, it's the opposite. Yeah? Um, and this is important, and this, gonna, this is going to be with us, I think, but I may be wrong, it's going to be with us for years, perhaps even decades. Um, I referred to a recent opinion poll of the UN. 75% of the people polled globally uh, thought that the crisis was a crisis of the morality of the market. Um, I referred to an opinion poll of the BBC, 27 countries. Um, in the United States, only 25% of the people thought that capitalism was working well. And that was the highest percentage of all the 27 countries. Whatever capitalism may be, you know, that's, that's already, you know, we can already have a long argument about that, but it shows you something, yeah? and that determines public debate, public opinion, and eventually politics. Yeah? First argument, or first fact, in my view. Yeah? Then I take you back in time, 2007, not so long ago, we had another perception then, this one, that the whole world was embarked on a collective course towards the end of history, as Fukuyama wrote after the collapse of communism, that combination of markets, democracy, and globalization. Well, I tell you that that perception was an illusion, and I do this for two reasons. First of all, rolling back the state, as the commissioner said, this is, had been the ambition of previous politicians, of the Reagan and Thatcher mold, and the state has never been rolled back. And you just have to check the figures on every front. Yeah. One. Two, globalization, yes, but behind globalization, behind the interface of trade, lies tremendous difference in economic model. And you're all economists, so I don't have to explain to you when you talk about capitalism that there are various forms, shapes, and sizes of capitalism. And we have already heard state capitalism, which is right here at the bottom, state capitalism, where the state is an active driver of uh, economic development. Well, in the decade or so prior to the twin crisis, prior to the subprime crisis, state capitalism was having a ball. And I document that in my book. And this was, of course, because a couple of the biggest developing countries out there, China, Russia, um, 
Indonesia to a lesser extent, um, Thailand, um, Brazil to a lesser extent, they have this model uh, and they already had it prior to the crisis. Democracy was also in decline. In the decade prior to 2007, half a billion people fell out of democracy. And then multilateral trade versus bilateral trade. Building block, stumbling block. I don't know. I hope that the commissioner is right. Maybe it also, maybe it transpires a strategy of cherry picking in trade at the price of global free trade. Um, at least that was what was happening. So this was the world prior to the crisis. And so this is important because what I'm about to tell you now is just an acceleration of this picture. So the crisis really was not a turning point. The crisis accelerated evolutions that were already happening prior to the crisis and generalized these evolutions. This is important because that tells you it may be part of a trend, and a trend is harder to reverse than an accident. Okay, so now I get to the crisis. This is what we do. Yeah? Stage number one. We save the banks and the insurers and what have you, except for Lehman Brothers. Stage number two. We save the car industry. Yeah? Stage number three, here is the economy falling like a rock. Somebody has to stop the free fall. Everybody is doing nothing, no consuming, no investing, no spending. So the government steps in and does depression economics. Mr. Keynes is brought back from his grave and we all do depression economics at the cost, obviously, of deficits and with the hope of the Keynesian multiplier. Yeah? Stimulus packages. Stimulus packages, the government playing God. Yeah? There's no growth. I will tell you where the growth will be. Yeah? Um, that's stage number three. And I have stage number four in a second. What is my warning? Yeah? Because I said it's a warning more than a prediction. Yeah? I think the commissioner is right about the fact that we haven't had a global trade war. When you look at you know, protectionism as we traditionally define it, barriers, you know, tariffs, uh, quantitative measures, what have you, they have increased, for sure, but the increase has now stopped. Okay, let's hope it continues that way. But I think there's something much more fundamental going on, and I call that neoprotectionism. And it's neoprotectionism uh, because it's different from the traditional one, and because it's not a, an, an ideological program. It's the consequence of something else. It's the fallout of something else. For instance, if Mr. Obama saves GM, 70 billion US dollars. Well, okay, that's 70 billion state aid, which is undercutting international competition. Yeah, okay, affects trade. And obviously, instead of then, you know, tearing Mr. Obama to the WTO or wherever, um, all the governments start doing the same thing for their uh, car manufacturers uh, um, with the same consequence. So this affects trade, affects the level playing field of globalization. The green economy, that's stage number four. Uh, because now we have moved on from stimulus to avoid depression to industrial strategy to have expansion. That's the new stage. Every single government out there now is busy 
developing deliberate industrial strategy for new growth. New growth. That's what we are. Everybody wants it, yeah? So let's go for it. The green economy, obviously, is the prime example. Everybody thinks that the green economy is the next green dream, eh? bonanza at your front door, hopefully, if only you have the right strategy. And this is what is happening. So a lot of commitment of public funds. Um, number one, in terms of investment, state investment, public funds, is China. China is number one, the global number one investor in green development, public, not private. But it wants private too. I don't know if you heard this story about rare earth minerals. I don't know if you know this. You know, whatever you want, if it's a solar uh, thing, if it's uh, um, you know, a turbine, if it's a hybrid engine, um, a, a winter, whatever, you need some rare earth minerals, 95% of which are found in China. So China has said, well, I will kind of reduce the export of those minerals. So if you want them, come and get them. Meaning, come and invest in China, private. Yeah? So this is what's happening. This is an arms race of the green economy in the hope of uh, future expansion with the same consequences. Yeah? Um, Nicolas Sarkozy, I actually, in, when I have more time, I have a whole story on Nicolas Sarkozy. Um, we have a nice picture of him dressed up like Napoleon. Um, Nicolas Sarkozy, um, he's one of these examples of the right moving to the left, by the way. You know, just check his electoral program as a president and his policies today. Um, he has come up with this idea of a national loan, 35 billion euros from the French taxpayer to be invested into strategic projects, obviously cho chosen by Mr. Sarkozy. Yeah? So this is, now, this is repeating itself. Yeah? That's the first legacy. The second legacy is that when you have politicians um, doling money around, there is a natural, understandable tendency to give it to the bigger players rather than to the small fry. And this is already documented by World Trade, uh, sorry, by Glo uh, World Bank uh, research, how this phase of crisis policies is benefiting bigger companies and therefore reducing, sorry, reducing competition. Yeah. Legacy number three, potential, yeah, is when you have invested so much funds, so many funds into a big player, you probably want to shield that player in the future. Probably. I don't know. This is what happened actually in the 70s. Um, and this is part of the difficulty of financial re-regulation. We have saved the banks, but in re-regulating financial markets, now we don't want to destroy the banks we just saved, do we? Yeah? Or destroy their competitive edge, do we? Yeah? So this is also a legacy, hard to define, hard to predict, but it's there. Finally, and if there's one book you should read, besides mine, of course, yeah, if there's one book you should read, it's uh, Gunnar Myrdal's Beyond the Welfare State, early 1960s, where he tells the following story. Yeah? We start off with a big crisis. Then it was the World War II. Um, then you have massive government intervention under the Keynesian philosophy. Then it was the Marshall Plan and stuff like that. Um, and then you have growth strategies, which is what we have now. Let's just, just explain it to you. And then there is some clever person who says, but you know, all these government interventions, we should be very deliberate and careful about how we spend public money. So therefore, let's really reflect on coordinating all these projects. 
And before you know it, you're into coordination and then into planning the planned economy. I'm not saying it will happen. I'm just saying we've seen it before. It's slippery. It's hard to stop. It's hard to find the exit. It's easy to fly past the exit. And then you have to go back. And that's very difficult. Yeah. I told you I would stop in 20 minutes, so I'm going to skip some things. Um, just globalization. Yeah? Just a couple of things on globalization. Um, in my book, in my personal opinion, we wouldn't have had what we have had after 1989 without three things. One, an intellectual understanding that free trade, however difficult, is in everybody's benefit. Economics. Two, the ability to sell that to your national, national constituents, yeah? power groups, lobbyists. Yeah? Three, an international leader who pushes people, who has an agenda, tries to you know, be an example. Well, I think that none of these three have actually survived the crisis without great damage. Sorry to say so, but the science of economics is contested. Yeah? The uh, probability for you to be able to sell free trade to your national constituents, when it's a crisis, nobody wants to do free trade, and everybody wants to protect what we, what we have in a crisis. And three, the United States is no longer a leader, um, is declining, and Mr. Barack Obama, I think, doesn't even want to lead. If he is able to lead, I don't know, but he doesn't even want to lead. So I will conclude with that. I had a lot of, a lot of other stuff, but um, I want to just conclude with one final point, and this is, this is the point. What I've been talking about and what my book is about is much more than just about economics, about prosperity, uh, about trade. It's about big strategic geopolitical issues. I think we really have to uh, acknowledge as people who are in the Western world that the Washington consensus was a Western consensus that we tried to export to the globe and that consensus has now gone down in infamy. Yeah? And that there is maybe a Beijing consensus, but certainly a competitive model out there. Um, and that the issues we have been talking about and my book writes about are really issues of strategic importance for the West. If the West still thinks that it should defend key principles of individual liberty, of choice, of a natural balance between a government and free enterprise, if we think that this is still important for us, I think it will be up to us, the West, and especially the EU, with the United States together. I really believe that the two of them together can be very powerful and important in the 21st century. Uh, it will be up to us to stand up for it yeah, and then have an agenda for it. And that's um, basically my hope for the future. Uh, um, thank you very much. Thank you. As Carol has to leave, I'm going to focus completely on you, if, you, if that's all right now, for a few questions um, uh, on, on the European dimension. First of all, let me say that many of us would believe that the greatest assurance that we have had that the competition impetus will be maintained have, will, uh, and, uh, has always been the Commission. The Commission has never bought 
at the fundamental requirements of the treaty. And um, if I may say so, uh, I would say that's particularly true of Belgium, which doesn't always get a good press here, which is which has always been a supporter of 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 um, an integrated market, which has really provided the impetus for Europe moving forward. But I would like to start by asking you the following question. I've heard it said that the reason we haven't got a Doha round is simple. It's two countries, and everyone's afraid to say it. Why, I don't know. India and the United States are the two countries. Now, if that is true, why is nobody saying it? India may have changed. People say that there is a different attitude now to, uh, to trade issues. And, but why, why, why aren't we calling a spade a bloody spade? Hmm? Is this a question to me? Yes. <laughs> I knew you'd love it. Well, I, I was in, uh, in Geneva in, in July 2008 uh, when we tried to, uh, to close a deal. And uh, I think it's uh, historically true that, that at that moment in time, the, the reason we didn't get to a deal was the uh, um, final misunderstanding between the United States and India. I mean, that, that's what really happened there, um, merely on, on, on agriculture. On, on the one hand, that uh, United States uh, were not ready to go far enough, and on the other hand, that uh, India wanted to protect it, uh, its uh, uh, subsistence ag agriculture, most notably in the uh, Indian state where Mr. Kamal Nath came from and he was before elections. I mean, that, that's uh, to a certain extent what happened there. But uh, of course, that's not uh, necessarily uh, getting us uh, out of the problems. And uh, I think that at this moment in time, if there has to come a move, it primarily has to come from the United States, that they, they should make an opening and at least say what they want, what they don't. I mean, they, they are in fact silent and uh, there was a ministerial meeting in, in Delhi and they were even absent. Uh, and of course then you cannot uh, force anybody else to come forward with proposals either. They have bilateral negotiations with Brazil, with India, with China. What we hear is that uh, they do get uh, nowhere, that uh, all these countries uh, reply that uh, if they want something more, they also have to put something more on the table. So we're really uh, stuck at this moment in time. And what is even more interesting to see is that the G20 in Pittsburgh uh, instructed to a certain extent the WTO that uh, there would be a solution for Doha before the end of 2010, before the end of this very year. Now, uh, these world leaders are also the ones that block the deal. I mean, if, if they say in, 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 uh, in the G20 you should do something, then they should give the, uh, uh, the powers to negotiate to their, uh, uh, to their high officials and to their ministers, and they don't do that. So there's a complete uh, contradiction between that public statement and what happens around the, in the green room, eh? yeah. what, what uh, happens around the negotiating table, and that's why I personally think that uh, uh, we as uh, trade ministers and, and trade commissioner, uh, we should uh, have uh, a political uh, uh, statement towards the G20 and having a meeting at the uh, 
uh, political level, at the level of ministers, uh, making it very clear and saying to the G20, look, if you really want a deal, then you have to come forward and uh, uh, put something on the table so that we can discuss it and give them the necessary powers to the people that negotiate in Geneva. <coughs> Any questions? Yes. Yeah, the front row. Front row. I have a question for Commissioner de Rucht. Thank you very much for your informative and comprehensive talk. Uh, you said that you are committed to, um, to make a, su a significant contribution to a successful conclusion of the Doha round. So my question is, uh, is twofold. What has the European Union to offer uh, uh, to break the deadlock in the, in the current Doha round? And secondly, uh, what has the European Union to offer to make the Doha round a proper development round? And I'm asking this question against the background that ac uh, according to, to uh, World Bank estimations, um, the impact um, of a likely Doha, ra uh, Doha round deal is, uh, in terms of uh, GDP, is one penny per capita in the, developed world, uh, in the developing world. We're going to take a couple of more questions, if that's all right. Next question, here, behind. I have a question uh, for Mr. van der Gucht. Um, I would like to know, you being a commissioner uh, of trade for the EU, how do you um, experience your, like, do you see um, you being constrained by 27 member states as a bargaining advantage or a bargaining weakness in economic diplomacy, and especially in the dollar round? Do you think you have enough leeway to uh, get to a deal? Thank you. Good. Next question. The gentleman beside you. Yes. Um. Perhaps I'm old, I wouldn't know the truth, but I have a feeling that I've seen and heard this all before. And there's no such thing as, as perfect, perfection. There's a, there's a normal curve of distribution with 95% and all that stuff. And you can't get away from uh, mistakes which are made. We have to learn to live with it. Work hard all the time to try and prove <coughs> matters, but it's as simple as that. Thank you. This gentleman over on the right. Then I'll come back to you, Carol. Yes, thank you. I'm a student of law, DLSE. I understand that recently Colombia and the sorry, my question is for Mr. De Good. Colombia and the EU finished negotiating a free trade agreement. I understand that under the new rules of the Lisbon Treaty, those types of agreements require the incorporation of some kinds of special clauses on non-proliferation of, weapon of weapons of mass destruction and human rights. However, it seems that when those kinds of clauses are included in, in those types of agreements, the ratification is that is required is ratification not only by the European Parliament but also by each national parliament. So my question in concrete is whether the free trade agreement between Colombia and the EU will require ratification by each national parliament of the EU or will ratification by the EU parliament itself be sufficient? Thank you. Okay, Carol. Thank you. Um, what can we do to uh, uh, unblock uh, Doha? Um, I think the ball is not in our camp. And uh, I, I come back to the uh, to the, the question put by, by Mr. Sutherland, uh, we are not responsible for what is presently happening. We, in, in the negotiations in 2008, we have uh, put on the table quite uh, some uh, breakthroughs with respect to, uh, to agriculture. We cannot go further. 
I mean, we, we simply wouldn't have political backing to go further, certainly not for market access. Some claim that eventually for subsidies you could do something at the, the, the last night eventually, but uh, that, that certainly would make a major political problem. So we are not going to move at this moment in time. The development, uh, it's, it's a long story, but um, we always tend to think in, when we are speaking about development in terms of north-south. That's not the only thing, you know. One of the very difficult uh, problems to tackle in Doha is the south-south trade between uh, uh, developing countries and emerging economies and, and developing countries. And uh, Because when you look, for example, at the position of, of Europe vis-a-vis -vis the ACP countries, that's, uh, they can export as, as much as they want into the European market because almost all of them are least developing least developed countries, so they have the everything but arms, which means uh, that they have everything duty-free and quota-free. But why don't they export? Well, for a lot of reasons, uh, lack of organization, uh, of uh, infrastructure, uh, that's why the uh, um, uh, aid for trade programs are very important, but, and they are in fact, when you look at, at uh, the, uh, the face value of those uh, programs, they are very important. Uh, in 2008, 7 billion euros of aid for trade, and what comes out of it? hardly more than, than, than what you have put into it. So it, it's, it's really also a, a very complex problem how, the, uh, um, how to integrate the African economies. That's why we are working on the uh, economic partnership agreements. Very, very uh, difficult uh, file also. So, but to, to um, uh, reduce it to the north-south relationship would simply not be fair to Europe, I think. Um, do we have more um, clouds because we are negotiating, negotiating uh, for the 27 member states, yes, that, that, that seems very obvious to me. And uh, uh, if the 27 member states were to negotiate for themselves, you know, each individually and coordinated in one way or another by the European Commission, eh, like it happens in a lot of other uh, areas, uh, political areas, it simply wouldn't give any result, you know. The fact that uh, it's the European Commission who is negotiating on behalf of the 27 member states makes that sometimes they, they get mad, they shout at you, they give you very long telephone calls from all over, from all over the place to uh, whatever place on the, the world you are. But in the end, they, they, are, they have to, to, to obey to, to what happens at, around the negotiating table as, 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 as long as we don't. Uh, uh, go further than the mandate, and even then, if we go further, the only thing they can do is refuse the, the agreement. So the, the negotiating power of the, uh, of the European Commission is uh, very important, and I think the only clue to get uh, to uh, uh, multilateral trade, uh, trade agreements, whether we will pursue or not, that's still something else, but as uh, this was already said before, it's not the fault of the European Union that, uh, that we failed in, in, in Geneva. The horizontal issues, uh, that, that's not only uh, difficult with, uh, with Colombia and Peru, it's, it, it's uh, for example, also very difficult with India. And India is refusing horizontal clauses on, on uh, uh, human rights, uh, uh, rights of, 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 uh, of workers, ILO uh, um, um, agreements, uh, treaties, and uh, weapons of mass destruction. Uh, so, but this is uh, the framework we have to work in. This has been decided not by the Commission, by the way. It has been decided by the Council of Ministers in 2007. It's very difficult uh, to come back uh, on that. 
but it's certainly making difficulties. Uh, also with the European Parliament, because uh, parliaments for, for European Parliament, these provisions out of 2007, they are a starting point, you know, they would like to go further, which is of course, I mean, then it's, it's really a non-starter with, with the, the, the countries that you are negotiating with. So this is not very, this is not very easy. Um, does it automatically imply that uh, it also has to be uh, uh, ratified by the uh, member states? No. And uh, um, the agreement with, uh, with Colombia and Peru uh, will not have to be uh, ratified by the uh, uh, national parliaments, the one with uh, uh, South Korea, for example, is. But that is not necessarily that difficult because once you have, in, this, in any case, once you have the uh, ratification by the European Parliament, then you have provisional application, so it comes into force, and then it becomes really very, very difficult for a national parliament to block it. So in itself, that's not the real stumbling block. We'll take one more question, if there is one. Yes, this gentleman over here. Thank you very much. Um, I just wanted to ask, what can be done to encourage popular support for trade liberalisation? What can be done? To uh, encourage popular support for trade liberalisation. How, how, can, how can you encourage popular support for trade liberalisation? Uh, for example, uh, by travelling to London and, and speaking here, no? Uh, well, um, I, I think that uh, a lot of people are afraid of... Uh, uh, taking the defense of, of uh, trade liberalization and um, once you are afraid you can't make the point anymore of course uh, so uh, those who believe that uh, trade liberalization is important should also say that publicly and whenever I'm in a debate on, on television or in parliament I uh, openly take the defense of, of, of trade uh, liberalization uh, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm not so all the time uh, getting into the whole discussion of the pros and the contras, you know, that, that's what professors are for. Eh? But I think that as a politician, if you are convinced that uh, uh, you have a case, that you, you need uh, the courage to uh, also uh, take the defense of it. Okay. Well, Carol, thank you very much you. indeed. Uh, I think we should. Thank you. We will, we, will now, we will now move on to um, Dr. De Vos um, and uh, questions and answers in regard to what he has said. Does anybody have any question to put to Dr. De Vos? They're all very keen on reading the book. <laughs> They're all intimidated by the erudition, perhaps. Um, well, maybe maybe you can explain a little bit more that you passed over uh -huh. in your in your in your speech. Mm -hmm. um, well, just just perhaps t t two points um, on globalization. Um, I think there is um, a big challenge institutionally for globalization. From my perspective, I remember I I used the big picture. Um, I'm not involved in the. The negotiations. I'm, I'm in a, you know, around the earth, circling around the earth, looking down. Um, for, in my book, a common factor of the crisis, plural, financial, economic, a common f factor of 
the policies of the crisis are um, a lack of sufficient international governance. Um, I think that globalization as an economic phenomenon uh, had really outpaced institutional structures. Um, it's, I, in the book, I liken it to, uh, to being in an airplane, globalization, you're in an airplane, all of you, and all of a sudden the airplane hits tremendous turbulence, it's falling down, and, all of, and you, you know, everybody gets up, you know, and you realize not only is there no pilot, but there's no, there's no cockpit. You know? And that's what happens. And what do you do? What do you do then? Wow. Um, okay, you jump, jump ship, you know, take your parachute, jump. Some, some people do that. Yeah? You get out of it, and you start being nationalistic. That's what a lot of people have been doing, people, states. Or you improvise on the spot. That's called the G20. Um, the G20 is not an institutional solution. For me, it is a power club. You know? It's the 20 biggest players trying to set the agenda for the rest of us. Yeah? Um, and I don't think that's progress. And I think, we're, hopefully, we're going to come back to some form of institutionalized, more global structure. Because this, to me, the G20 looks like the 21st century version of the 19th century. You know? Big countries negotiating ad hoc, you know, flashing out deals. If that's the way forward for globalization, for the institutional organization of globalization, then it's going to be much more imperialistic, mercantilistic. Um, and given the fact that you don't believe in a single model anymore, there are competing models, it's going to breed tension. Tension. And this is what we are seeing today already increasingly, tension tension over trade that immediately becomes much more political than it was before. Tension over monetary issues that become much more political and geopolitical than before. So, um, and I think that's where the challenge for the EU also rests. Unfortunately, the EU has left the building, um, but... But it's still here. It's still here. Yeah. The, the EU, I think, is the, was, is the most advanced level of international governance. And even the EU was quasi-impotent vis-a-vis the resurgence of nationalist policies, um, rescue policies, and stuff like that. And I think the primary challenge for the EU internally, we have heard the EU talk externally, trade, but internally is restoring the credibility and the effectiveness of the internal market. I think that's the key thing. This is the globalization inside the EU. Um, and I. I'm hopeful. I think it's possible. Um, the European Commission has its agenda, Europe 2020, where reinforcing the internal market is one of the key points. Um, but I think it has the tide of history against it. Um, and this is you know, my concern as a citizen of Europe. When you look a little bit at the picture of Europe, uh, um, let me give you the picture prior to the crisis. The internal market was in decline. Why was the European Constitution voted down? Partly because of fear of competition. Uh, exploit it. Yeah? So coming back to the question there, how do you sell it? Exploit it by people in France and the Netherlands. Um, look at the, the, the fate of the services directive, uh, liberalizing the services market. Yeah? What came out of that? Uh, look at energy. Yeah? Energy is liberalized. Yeah, hello, on paper, on paper, not in reality. Uh, 
Um, long distance uh, transport of, uh, or railway transport of goods is also liberalized. Yeah? Take a look around. You don't see a lot of competition. What you do see, it's in the media today, is SNCF, the state company of France, and Deutsche Bahn, the state company of Germany, fighting over Arriva in the UK. That's what you see with the help of the taxpayer. Um, so this was the, 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 the internal market in my book, looking at it from a distance. The agenda for the internal market was already declining. Uh, the weight of the commission, which is supposed to be the driving force of the European collective interests vis-a-vis -vis the national interest of the members. The weight of the commission in my book was already declining uh, ever since the law, politically. Now you have the Lisbon Treaty with a president, a president who represents the states. Uh, it's the council president, the states, not Europe. So I see the political weight of the, of the commission institutionally weakened. Um, you have um, a Lisbon Treaty now. The Lisbon Treaty says officially the goal of the EU is a social market economy. Yeah, think about that. Officially the goal of the EU is a social market economy. It used to be that the goal of the EU was to have an internal market shot up the arm of the member states. That was the goal of the EU. The member states had their economic models, yeah, but the goal of the EU was to give them an injection. Yeah. Um, now the EU has abandoned this, not abandoned, it's now in a protocol. It had been in the treaty for over five decades. Now it's in a protocol, the internal market uh, goal. Um, trade, trade, I, it surprised me that the commissioner didn't mention that. Um, but since Lisbon, all the trade agreements that will be signed by the commission on behalf of will have to be voted in the European Parliament as well. The European Parliament now has co-decision power in trade. So you will have to sell trade liberalization treaties to the political constituency represented in the European Parliament. And you know what that will bring. This will be an American-style scenario. So add all that up, and I'm then pessimistic, right? That's what I, that's, I'm pessimistic. Perhaps I'm realistic. Um, you're ferociously pessimistic, and, <laughs> and you're and you're also and you're also wrong. I mean, what okay. what the I believe what the European has, uh, integration process has achieved, going back to the 80s and the 1992 project, and the creation of a single currency for all the problems that there are at the moment, has been utterly remarkable. And I think it's very easy to be critically negative about what it's doing and what it has achieved. Whereas in reality, I believe that it's done an enormous amount of good in opening up markets. It's done an enormous amount of good in creating a dynamic true competition policy. So I'm, I'm, I'm not as okay, optimistic as you are. No, but I don't disagree at all with that. Uh, on the contrary, I share that 200% uh, and I also applaud that in the book actually, the benefits uh, of the EU uh, from that perspective. But uh, well, look at the EMU, yeah, the, the Euro stuff. You know? This is another institutional challenge. Yeah? Sure. Economic governance. It's not up to a par with the political construction of the, the similar challenge. Similar challenge. I don't say it is uh, predestined to go wrong. I think it's going to be more difficult to make it right than in the past. That's my. This gentleman at the back. 
Yeah, two two points. First, uh, do you think the commissioner was was far too uh, casual about uh, the growth of protectionism? I'm thinking particularly of financial mercantilism and the growing tension between the United States and China. I mean, it's the G2 we've really got to get down to. And, uh, you know, with accusations of currency manipulation getting stronger and stronger, that's the first point. And the second point is in terms of the EU and, and the current euro crisis. I mean, Christine Lagarde last week really made a rather tentative comment about perhaps, you know, the uh, Germans ought to do a little bit more. And she got promptly slapped down by the finance minister of Germany and by uh, Chancellor Merkel. I mean, China, uh, China doesn't... Uh, is, is obviously continuing to be an export major exporter, and Germany shows, shows no inclination really to do much about increasing domestic consumption and increasing trade within Europe uh, to help the South. So, so, so on that last, the question is on the last point. I mean, the, the last question is is obviously the growing, growing tension. We've got growing tensions between the U.S. and China on trade, and particularly on on currency manipulation. The accusations flying yeah, back and forth, and there's cr growing tension. Wouldn't you agree within within Europe? I mean, European integration, so, despite what Mr. Sutherland said, I mean, we're actually seeing. I would have thought the, them flying off in the different directions. Certainly, if last week and the exchanges between the two finance ministers of France and Germany are to be uh, considered. Okay. Well, first of all, coming back to the point which was rightly made, if you have a broad historical perspective, you have to say the EU, you know, bottom line has done tremendous good and has achieved a lot in a very short term. Eh? Um, but I think you're right, and I think it just points to the lack of uh, sufficient, as I said, you know, platform of channeling the competing national interests. Um, through an institutional system. Uh, the, uh, the Maastricht criteria definitely failed. Yeah? That kind of governance definitely failed. Um, what comes in its place? Question mark. Does anything come in its place? Yeah? That's, that's the tension we have now. Um, and I think as long as the crisis really bites, yeah? as long as you don't see um, a rising tide of economic expansion, I think these differences in, in, in you know, strategic outlook from your national perspective are likely to produce more internal tension. I think the, you know, the crisis situation is really the ally of nationalist reflex. Yeah? Uh, so as long as that lasts, um, I think you're going to have this scenario. Um, obviously, we have an exceptional situation with, Greek on our hand, with Greece on our hands. Yeah? Uh, we will see... You know, if that passes the radar screen somehow, maybe we will go back to some kind of normalcy. Maybe Europe 2020 will do much more and will have more bite than uh, the 2010 uh, strategy, uh, the Lisbon strategy. Who knows? Who knows? Um, but I, I agree with you completely on your point on financial mercantilism. Um, I think, indeed, the commissioner in my book, eh, and he suggested as much, was a bit too optimistic, I think. Um, uh, by the way, in the WTO uh, study he referred to, um, financial mercantilism is not included. The bailouts and the implications for trade are not included into that study. Uh, um, so that, that alone tells you something. Um, and I think these uh, currency... Uh, tensions again are a sign of the times. You know, um, the U.S. dollar is gradually losing its hegemony. Yeah, in its place you have different currencies, more currencies, more tension. 
yeah, imbalances and no institutional structure in place. It's kind of the situation you have in Europe now. No institutional structure in place and not a common model. Yeah. So more tension, yes, I agree. Where will that end? I don't know. I'm actually, you probably won't believe it, but I'm actually an eternal optimist. Um, but who knows? Who knows? I just want to give a warning call to say, yo, wake up. We have been doing a lot of improvisation, a lot of firefighting. It's time we start thinking about long-term consequences of what we've been doing. Sure. Yes. Second row. Um, I have some, first some comments to make, a few remarks. Uh, first remark is that the, um, the Constitution isn't, like, wasn't voted down in the Netherlands because of the Services Directive, but because of other um, norms, uh, Turkey issues, all those kind of things. So just to make that clear. Um, and um, secondly, I think competition policy actually did quite well in the European Union. Uh, keeping in mind that it was under such enormous constraint. So I don't share your very pessimistic view on the EU and the work of um, the commissioner at that time, Nelly Cruz. Um, but then another point, you talked about international economic governance. Uh, what would you suggest, being very critical about the G20, what would you suggest we have uh, in the international states to have um, a working, working mechanisms uh, because I think actually G20 might not be optimal, but it's the best we have. And I wouldn't see any other institution taking up this task. So I would rather have your opinion on that, please. Yep. Finally, gentlemen over here. And well, my question is very similar to the, the last one. Uh, since you seem to be against uh, the G20 as an example of global economic governance, what is your alternative to the G20? One final question. This lady here in the center. to ask a question on behalf of all the women who haven't asked questions. Um, and I'd, I'd actually appreciate it if perhaps both of you could answer it, because I'd be interested in your views also, Mr. Sutherland. Um, and that is, you referred, Professor, to the, the need for the West to, um, for the EU and the US and the transatlantic relationship to be reinvigorated. And I wonder how you do that um, as Europeans on two counts. First of all, when Europe has become extremely accustomed blaming America for a lot of things in the last decade. And we even have our politicians in this country saying that the whole crisis started in America, and it did not. Germany had a role, the UK had a role, other parts of Europe had a role. Um, but secondly, when you have such a um, phenomena in the United States politics, like the Tea Party um, revolution in the Republican side of politics, and we haven't got anything like that, really, of any scale like that in Europe. So how does how does the trans how, do, how do you reinvigorate from Europe the transatlantic relationship in order to tackle these global problems? Would you like to okay. take those? Sure. Um, well, um, for the Dutch uh, person, obviously Dutch, yeah. Um, Sure. I mean, you can debate. Uh, I mean, I followed the elections a bit, but I'm not saying it was uh, um, exclusively that. But remember the story about the Polish plumber. You know? um, th that's France. So that certainly played a big role there. Yeah? So um, 
Um, and you know, anti-EU sentiment was certainly capitalized on. Eh? Uh, whatever you want to call it, whatever shape it takes, but it's anti-EU sentiment. Um, the G20, why are you against the G20? Um, I'm pretty much of your inclination. You know, I think that the G20 is probably the only thing that could have been done, you know, because you had to do something immediately without anything. You know? um, so I'm not saying, I'm not against the G20. You know? Having no G20 would have been worse than having a G20. Um, what I'm saying is that this is a mode of global governance which is not the style of global governments we laboriously try to construct after World War II. You know, it's a mode of governance which gives you know, the big countries a floor to set rules for the rest of the world because that's more or less the ambition of the G20. It's much more ambitious than the G8 in that respect, from that respect. Um, and so I personally, if you say, what do you want to do then? I would like to see the G20 integrated into the institutional structure from the UN, whatever. You know, I think I have to be something new. But um, I personally don't think that this is the way forward for humanity in the long run in the 21st century. You know? And this is the thing that I, I wanted to say. I think this is a different type of... Um, kind of global um, governance and, and, and uh, political uh, integration than the type we very imperfectly you know, and, and, and minimalistically tried to embrace in a previous period of our history. That's the thing I'm saying. Yeah? Uh, certainly the G2 for me would be worse still. You know? um, the West. Um, Oh, yeah, yes, the West. How do you do that? Well, it's a good question. How do you do that? Um, and I think that the blame, uh, you know, you say the EU has been saying a lot of bad things. I think uh, Mr. Obama wants to be the Pacific president. Uh, and I'm, I'm, my message to Mr. Obama is that he shouldn't neglect the Atlantic side. And that the Atlantic side, I think, if he wants to be something in the, on the Pacific side, he might need the Atlantic side as leverage um, in the Pacific side. Um, so how do you do that? Well, I, I'm, I'm not involved in international politics, and I don't have the kind of uh, agenda Mr. De Hoogt should be following in uh, rebooting Doha when he says the ball is not in my camp, how do you get the ball out of their camp, etc. But I think it's much more strategic and fundamental. You know? I'm, I'm, I'm not involved in the, the, you know, the day-to-day -day stuff. Uh, I think it's strategic and fundamental. When I read a lot of studies that say that the Atlantic relationship is a thing of the past, it actually should be, should be buried, and this is going to be a different type of century, etc. I think it's wrong. I think it's wrong, and I think when you look at the big kind of tectonic movements that have occurred and are occurring uh, um, in the wake of the crisis um, for democracy, decline in democracy, accelerated through the crisis, Oh, um, um, I refer to you, maybe you haven't seen it, but Russia and China have recently had a summit together. Yeah, of, uh, yeah, this is, that's, I'm not saying it's a Cold War, but I'm saying that you know, democracy is not embraced as spontaneously as a, as a byproduct of economic prosperity, etc., as we once thought. And I personally think that democracy matters. Yeah? So I think you know, that for that part, and second part, economic you know, vision of government and liberty, markets and stuff, uh, these two things, I see that as a very natural, uh, historical, common heritage. Um, 
and I think this is something we should stand up for and defend, you know, um, everywhere. And I think we're going to need each other. That's my sentiment, but I may be wrong. And there's so much, you know, still in the future unwritten. And we will see what China becomes, and we will see what India does, and we will see what uh, Russia eventually does or doesn't do, etc. But for now, I think it's important to keep that, you know, on the radar screen. Um, in conclusion, I would say this: Europe shares, in my opinion, common values. I don't believe that we share those common values in a lot of cases with the United States. I don't say that in a negative way about the United States. It's just that we've got different attitudes. Take the death penalty for an example. There are a whole range of different things where we are very different from the United States. I think our future is dependent on defeating intergovernmentalism at European level by having institutions which create a European position effectively. And I think that to my surprise and regret that Mrs. Merkel, who I had seen as being a leader in this area, is not looking that way now, uh, looking much more like an intergovernmentalist, and Sarkozy, as we know, is an intergovernmentalist. So for me, therefore, we have to regenerate European integration and we have to rely ultimately on decision-making in the common interest of Europeans and not uh, to uh, sort of divide and conquer uh, in terms of where we're going into the future. That's, that's my view. I think that Europe, Europe has great strengths. And I think we, we actually share an awful lot. You can argue about tribalism. You can argue about values. But values, the values that we have, I think we generally share in Europe. Um, you can argue about whether they came from a Judeo-Christian heritage or whether they came from the Enlightenment. You can have arguments and issues about this. Chris Brown has written magnificently on this recently in a book recently published, Chris Brown, of this, of this establishment. Where, where do these values come from? Well, we can, we can debate that, but I, I don't think we can deny that we have them. So I'm not, a, I'm not a pessimist. I believe in Europe, and I believe in an integrated Europe. So thank you all very much for your participation. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. We're, we've been very fortunate in having Mark DeVos, who very understated, in a very understated way made reference to his wonderful book, which is available for you, um, and um, I think I think it's very it's a very interesting analysis, which is stimulating. So thank you all for coming.